as you're grabbing a seat, you know, I, I know um, I'm just going to mention this. If you're new with us, my name is Brad. And uh, if you've been with us, maybe you've come in the last few weeks, uh, you haven't seen me here. And, uh, and so it's good to have you. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to have you with us today if you're new with us. Right now, the ushers, they're going to receive the offering. So if you brought that with you, that's kind of a continued part of our worship. And so you can take that out as they come and receive that. While they do that, and before I dive into the message, I just want to mention one particular announcement. Um, in fact, it, it's, it's really kind of an amazing, amazing um, thing that we get to do what we do. But we have an amazing team here that works with students like junior high and high school, and then also all of our kids all the way down to birth. And uh, this month, on January 30th, from 5 to 7 p.m., the, those whole teams, they're actually hosting a parent night where they're just going to talk about vision and talk about direction, talk about the things that they're passionate about, talk about the things that they want to pour into your kids over the next several months and into the summer. They're going to talk about opportunities that are being created for this summer that are really unique and beautiful. And, and I just want to encourage you, if you're a parent, to really take that time seriously. Um, and, I, and I'm going to just kind of leave the announcement side of this for just a moment and, and say this. Um, Sherry and I, we've, we've had the privilege of raising three daughters, and uh, we somehow made it to this point. They're all adults now, and they're actually pretty decent people, and we kind of like them. And other people like our kids. And so sometimes what happens is couples that are having kids, couples that are, you know, they've got young families, they'll come to us and say, you know, what did you guys do? Because they think we knew what we did to do what we did, right? And uh, oftentimes we just say like about 90% of it, we have no clue. It was like throwing darts blindfolded at a dartboard most of the time, right? But the one thing I know that we did over and over again is we made a commitment with each one of our kids that the local church that, that putting people in their path that loved Jesus that weren't just mom and dad would be a part of our kids' lives, right? And so we made sure they were sitting in church and we made sure they went to youth group. We never grounded our kids from youth group because we thought that's a dumb thing. Like Jesus is the, the one person that might make them do what we want them to do. Why would we ground them from church, right? So we just made church our priority. And, and I don't know that that's the, the secret sauce for this whole thing. I just know that with our kids, that's a constant for us. And so I say all that to say that we're doing this parent night and I just wanna encourage you, if you've got kids and they're birth through high school age, I just want to encourage you to be a part of this. There's a free dinner that's being served. There's childcare for small kids um, so that you don't have to wrangle them while you're there. And we just want to talk to you about what we want to do in the life of your kid. And we want you to be a part of that conversation as well. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Good? Are you good with that? All right. Two or three of you are good with that. Awesome. That's great. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, if you grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you, that's page 731, if you want to follow along there. Uh, we're going to dive into that in just a moment. We're continuing in a series that's called Humankind. And uh, if you've been with us at all the last month or month and a half or so, you know that we've been looking at the encounters that Jesus had with people, with humankind, during his life on earth. And uh, in this process, as we've been moving through this, we've been discovering so much about Jesus. We've been discovering so much about ourselves. We've been discovering things about our relationship with God um, because we're looking at these encounters with, with humanity. Uh, but today, as we dive into the text, I want to address an aspect of what we've been talking about and looking at, and I want to be really clear about this. Um, and let me just start by saying this. There are aspects of the human experience that are universal. 
Uh, when I say universal, I mean that there are things that every human experiences. There are emotions that every one of us experience. There are, uh, there are uh, experiences that we encounter, that, that we all share. There are uh, questions that we all ask that are universal. And, and this is especially true as it relates to the broad... Um, the existential questions that we ask as people, the questions that we ask around origins. Humanity has always wondered, where did we come from? And, and what's our purpose for being here? And is there some place we're going next? Those are questions that have been asked through the ages. It doesn't matter what culture you've been in. It doesn't matter where in history you've landed. We all ask these sort of questions. But if you were to distill down all of these things that we ask, essentially they all begin to revolve around one significant question, and it's this. What is God like? What is God like? Ultimately, that's what we're trying to figure out because that's something we think about. What is God really like? Human beings, universally, we desire to know more about God. It doesn't matter who you are. You wake up with a sense when you begin to live that there is somebody or there is someone or there is something out there and we have this desire to know what is God actually like and, and, and what is that God actually doing? Is there a being? Is, what, what is actually happening out there? That's a question we all ask. That is very human for us to do. But what puzzles me, um, and what I really find odd, is how much energy and how much effort Christians give to answering these kinds of musings. Uh, in the last century, there have been volumes written of people hypothesizing about what God might be like and they do that from within the walls of Christendom. That there are sermons that are preached and there are discussions that ensue and there are debates that have happened. In recent years, there's deconstruction that's being talked about as people wonder what God is, is really all about. And I find it very odd. Why? Well, this is normal if you're human, but it's odd if you're a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus person, as I like to say, then you already know exactly what God is like. Are you with me? It's a lot like this. Um, I mentioned my daughters earlier. I have three daughters. And uh, one of the greatest gifts in my life has been the dad of daughters. I love I have loved being their dad. And if I could go back and do it all over again, not only would I do it again, but I would probably do it better the second time. Amen? Somebody knows what that's like, right? Do some things different, probably do it better. Um, but I, I love being their dad. And you know what? I am the only dad that they've had. Right? I am their dad. So that means this. If you were to ask my daughters, what is a dad like? They're probably going to describe who? Me, right? Because I am the dad that they have known. So if you ask them what dad is like, well, dad is like Brad because Brad is dad. I know this sounds like Dr. Seuss just for a moment, but hang with me, right? <laughs> if you expand this a little further, then you think about it this way. Brad is to dad as Jesus is to God. That's what I want you to understand. Brad is to dad as Jesus is to God because Jesus is God, 
So in this series, as we're, we're, we're looking at the interactions of Jesus, what we're really doing is we're getting to know God. We're learning how to live with him. We're learning how he feels about us. We're learning how he thinks about us and how, how we can think about him. We're learning about how we interact with him, and it informs our lives our understanding of God is changing as we move through this because the stories that we're unpacking, they solve the mysteries that we wonder about. They answer the questions that we ask late at night when we're laying in bed, which in turn, when we begin to solve those mysteries and ask, answer those questions, now we are enabled to live these remarkable lives as a result of it. And that's what brings us to this story today in Luke chapter seven. Hopefully you've had an opportunity to get there um, I'm going to start reading. We're just going to read this, and then I'm going to unpack it. I just want to say this ahead of time. This is a beautiful story that we're about to get into. It is a beautiful story, but I'm going to also say this. It has significant implications and may significantly uproot some of your thoughts about how God looks at or feels about us. So I want to read this, and then we're going to talk about it. So Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, it says this. It says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender, one owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, as we dive into this, I want to make a clarification about this story that shapes how we understand it and how we apply it to our own lives. In most of our Bibles, including the ones that are in our pews here, um, you'll find that publishers have inserted headings throughout the chapters to give us an idea of what's about to take place. So that when you're reading the Bible, you kind of get to a section, you go, oh, it's about to shift. There's going to be this next thing that happens. There are two hazards with this. First of all, um, those things don't exist in the original manuscripts of the Bible, just so you know. Those are publisher decisions to add those things in. So they're not in the Bible. Secondly is this. 
a heading, even just a heading, requires that somebody has an interpreter's understanding of what's about to take place in the text, and then they're telling you about what's about to happen, which means these little insertions can cause us to miss or misunderstand what the story or the text is actually about. So if you look in your Bible and you look at this particular text, right before verse 36, you'll probably see a heading along the lines of, Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman. So that's what we're told this story is about. This is a story that's about this sinful woman. And then the story begins. But I want you to go back and think about what we just read. This wasn't a story about one person, was it? This is a story about two people. So the heading is wrong, and it leads us in a wrong direction because we need to understand the nature of the story is about two distinct people. This is a story about the woman, and it's a story about Simon the Pharisee. And it's a story about how both of them, it's a historical account about how both of them interact with Jesus, how both of them understand Jesus, about how both of them relate to Jesus. And here's what's really interesting about this. Both of them represent two very different positions or postures. And yet what I discover is that both of these postures or positions, they exist within the context of Christianity very frequently. So I want to unpack this a little bit further. And I want to get this picture just a little bit more clear in our heads. So first of all, we have Simon. Uh, the, the text says that Simon is a Pharisee, which means that he is a member of the cultural or religious elite of the day. This guy is essentially a celebrity, if you would have had such a thing in that sort of culture, right? He lives at the highest rung of culture. But I also want you to see something else. He's also very unique from other Pharisees. Um, the, the Pharisees, in general, they were vehemently opposed to Jesus. They were constantly battling him. There were constant discussions. They were trying to trap him. Uh, if you remember a few weeks back, we met the Pharisee Nicodemus, who when he wanted to have a conversation with Jesus, he came to him under the cover of night because it would have been embarrassing to have had that kind of conversation in the day because Pharisees and Jesus, they were in conflict with each other. But Simon, if you notice this story, Simon has invited Jesus to dinner. He's invited him to dinner. He didn't invite him just to speak. He didn't say, why don't you come by the synagogue and we'll have a debate. He didn't say any of those sorts of things. He says, I want you to come to dinner, which culturally means that he wanted relationship with Jesus. When he invited him to dinner, he's saying, no, I want relationship with you. He's interested. Simon is genuinely interested in Jesus. In fact, he's so interested as a Pharisee that he put his own reputation on the line, right? I'm going to invite you over to dinner, even though my people don't hang out with you. I want you to come over to my, dinner, my house for dinner because I want to get to know you better. So he does this. He invites them over. They have this banquet. They have this party. The scene, by the way, culturally is very different than a dinner party in our culture. And I want you to understand this because I think it helps make the story make sense. Um, first would have been the way that they sat. It says that they reclined at the table. Uh, and so you can probably imagine what that looks like. Cushions maybe on the ground and a low table in front of them. They would have leaned in towards the table with their feet facing away from the table for very obvious reasons because nobody wants to eat next to those nasty things, right? And so they point their feet away and then they lean in towards the table. So they would have been sitting like this. And there would have been people moving around the room. 
Because of Simon's stature in the culture, there would have been servants who were milling about. But also, and this is where there's a real departure from our culture, in that culture, if an individual like Simon threw this sort of party and there were distinguished dinner guests who had been invited over for dinner, the public knew it was okay to work yourself into the space and just linger there. So almost like groupies, there are people in the public who would gather around and while they may not have been distinguished dinner guests sitting at the table, they could actually eavesdrop. They could listen to the conversation between the rabbi and the Pharisee. They could lean in and hear what was going on. And so there are people that are milling about. This would have been the scene. Jesus leaning in at this table. There's people all around. It's a party. And then we meet our second character. We have this woman. She is not a part of the cultural or religious elite. In fact, if you had a pendulum and you put Simon at one end and you let that thing go, when it swung and reached the furthest opposite end of the pendulum, you would discover that woman culturally, socially, religiously, spiritually. That's where you would find her. She is not like Simon. In fact, there are some clues about her identity that are in the text, some things that are stated about her. First, a better translation, most of our translations say that she was a woman from the city. The better translation is that she was a woman of the city, which carried a particular nuance with it. And you can probably see where this is going if you've been around. She's a woman of the city. And then it says that she was a known sinner, which means that she did something with her life that everybody knew, everybody was aware of. She operated in a way that everyone knew certain things about her. The, the inclination that the author is leaning us towards here is that the woman is a prostitute. She's a woman of the city. She's a woman of the streets. She's a woman who's a prostitute. So these are our two characters. We have Simon, He's moral, he's respected, he's influential, he's wealthy. And then we have this woman, and she has a reputation, and she's not respected, and she's immoral by everybody's standards. And while they're radically different on so many levels, in one way, they are the same. They are both interested in Jesus. They both want to know more about Jesus. He has their attention. They both are captivated by him. And I point this out because I think we all need to understand that this is not a story about somebody who really, really loves Jesus and then somebody who is indifferent to Jesus or even opposed to Jesus. This is a story about two different people who are both interested in Jesus. They both want to know more about him. They're both leaning in to see who he is. But then the story takes a really interesting and telling turn. So I want to keep going here. So she hears, the woman hears that Jesus is going to be having dinner at Simon's house. And remember, culturally, the public is allowed in this place. And so she has this idea that she's going to come cleanse the feet of Jesus at this party with this perfumed oil that she has. So um, th this is something that would have been normal for the for the the provider of the food to have available, a servant or somebody to wash the feet of the guests or at least to offer some water so the guests could do this. But this woman decides, no, I'm gonna go there because the public's in, I'm gonna sneak in and I'm gonna wash the feet of Jesus. She has this idea, like I'm gonna go do this. I'm gonna go, go do this sort of thing. But then something happens. She, she's in the room, she's among all the others 
And then the text says that while she's standing behind Jesus, she begins to weep. And her tears begin to fall on the feet of Jesus. As far as we know, she hasn't even knelt yet. She's just standing over Jesus' feet, and already she's weeping. And then the picture that Luke paints is that while she's weeping and the tears are hitting the feet of Jesus, she, she kneels down and she undoes her hair, which would have again been culturally unacceptable for a woman to uncover and undo her hair. She undoes her hair and she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with her tears and her hair. And then she breaks the alabaster jar that she has with her and she pours the perfumed oil and she's washing and kissing the feet of Jesus. This moment right here is where the story takes a turn. This is where we see the difference between these two people who are seeking after Jesus. Verse 39 says that Simon sees this. You know, he's sitting across the table and he sees this woman. And, and, it, and it says that he says something to himself. And I, and I think that's really important for us to, to hear. I, I, too often I've heard people paint Simon as this sort of judgmental jerk who's condemning this woman. But, but if you put this in context, you actually see Simon really differently. Remember, he's already interested in Jesus. By the way, you might even see yourself in Simon in this moment. Because he's trying to figure out who Jesus is. Like he thinks he knows him. He's invited him for dinner. They want this relationship. And now he's observing, right? He says to himself while he's watching this, if this man was a prophet, he'd know who this woman is and he wouldn't let her do this, right? And the text says he says to himself, this isn't an announcement that he made to everybody else. We're not even sure how loud he said it. The, the reality is he's just perplexed. He's looking at Jesus. He's trying to understand him. And he's talking to himself because according to his construct, his worldview, according to his brand of religiosity, not only would a woman like this not be permitted to touch a man like Jesus, the rabbi, but if he is a prophet then he should know who she is. So he's, he's reaching this conundrum in his own thinking. Simon's brand of truth doesn't allow bad behavior in the room. His brand of truth is, is rooted in right answers. It's about systems and structures and laws and rules. And so he's drawing conclusions. Either Jesus isn't divine or Jesus isn't pure. In other, either case, we have some sort of problem here. So what's going on? He's processing what Simon is doing. He's like, I don't know who Jesus is. Why, if he is who he says he is, why would he let this woman touch him? How could he let this woman touch him? So he's having a crisis in this moment. But he's having a crisis because for Simon, everything is up here. It's all in his head. Everything that he's doing, everything that he's thinking, all of it is intellectual. All of it is impersonal. What Simon has invited Jesus over to dinner for is an elevated discussion. He wants a discussion. But then we have this woman, and she is 100% right here. She is in her heart. She has broken through the cultural constructs. She's crossed the boundaries of her societal norms. She's violated the sensibilities of everybody in the room. She has figuratively and literally let her hair down and she is touching Jesus, which by the way, that's what bothers Simon. 
Because his religion isn't personal. His religion wouldn't allow something like this. His religion doesn't involve touching. And that's what's disrupting him. She, is, she of all people, is touching Jesus. If he knew who she was, he would never let her do this. See, Simon wants a discussion. But she wants a relationship, right? Simon comes with conditions, frameworks, ideas of how this is supposed to be, but she doesn't come with any conditions, with nothing. How do we know this? Well, that little alabaster jar that she brought with her, this is a very special, very beautiful thing that she brings with her. It would have been a small flask of perfume with a really long neck. The nature of that long neck meant that the contents could barely be poured out, right? No air could get in to release the contents, and so it was very difficult to get the contents out of this, which means that this little alabaster jar with this perfumed oil, you couldn't pour what was in it out, but you could smell it. It had this beautiful fragrance, fragrance. And so lots of women wore these alabaster jars around their necks. Think of it like essential oils in our culture today, right? It's like having a little diffuser around your neck. And so they would walk around, and when a woman wore this, men would take notice, right? It caught their attention. It was appealing. It smelled good. It was an expression of beauty, and oftentimes it was an expression of wealth. And so women would wear this. But in order to pour it out, as is described in the text, she would have had to break the neck of the jar and let the contents spill out, rendering it ultimately useless in that culture. Do you see what she's doing in this? Do you understand what she's doing? I've heard people for years, they talk about this in like economic terms, like this is some sort of lesson on tithing. Like, yeah, it was expensive. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a financial implication to this, but that's not what she's doing. That's not what this is about. This was the only power she had. It was the only power she had. Do you remember what she does for a living? She's a prostitute. So what power does a prostitute have in a world like that one? What power does one have in a, in a world like this one that we live in? Your appeal, right? Her only capital, her only power, her only leverage in life was her desirability. And in this picture, she is taking it off and she breaks it and she pours it out on the feet of Jesus. And in doing so, what she is doing is saying, listen, Jesus, if you are everything that you say you are, that changes everything. And I give you everything. That's what she's doing. Which I believe is the only rational or reasonable response to Jesus, by the way. See, when Jesus gets our attention, we have one of two choices. Like when, when we start to be captivated by the, the, the miracles of Jesus or the stories of Jesus, or maybe you meet somebody and their life has been compelled or changed by Jesus. When we start to get interested in who Jesus is, we have one of two pathways that we can take. We can either go the way of Simon or we can go the way of the woman. If you go the way of Simon... It essentially means this. It means, and by the way, we don't say this stuff out loud. We would never say it out loud, but this is operationally how we function. We basically say this. I'm interested in you, Jesus, 
but you need to fit into my understanding of how the world works. Like I've got some values and I have some priorities and I have some goals that I've set for my life. And Jesus, as far as I'm concerned, I'm really interested in you as long as you don't conflict with those things. As long as you and I have the same goals and objectives, as long as we have the same viewpoints on what should be done and where we should go, then I'm interested in you and we can go a little bit further. But there is this fear that is inside of us that says, if I give him everything, if I broke open the flask of my life and I poured myself out, A, would it be reciprocated? And B, would I actually get where I think I'm supposed to be going? And so what do we do if we're Simon? Well, we invite him over for an occasional meal and we have polite discussions with Jesus about our lives, but we never truly give our whole lives or all of our love to him. And maybe it's rooted in logic, but it isn't logical. Why? <laughs> because the only way you'll ever discover Jesus for who he is is if you let him be who he is. And the only way he can ever be who he is is if you give him everything. You have to give him your whole life. You'll never find out who Jesus really is if you don't allow him operationally to be who he says he is. Are you with me in this? Like he says he is this person, but if we don't lean in, we're never gonna discover that, right? If we keep him at arm's length, if it's always on our terms, it'll never happen. You will not discover Jesus in increments. At some point, you have to give him your heart. You have to give him life and say, you know what? You've got it. It's mine. I'm pouring myself out on your feet. It's all or nothing. You have to give him everything. So Simon, yes, he's seeking, he's interested. I think he genuinely respects Jesus, but he's holding back. He's holding back, and, and, and there's a reason why he's holding back, and that story that Jesus tells, he actually unpacks that and explains it for him. Jesus looks at him across the table. By the way, we don't know how audible Simon was, but apparently too audible, right, when he asked the question about the woman, because Jesus either knew what he was thinking or heard what he said, and he says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. And Simon says, well, we're here for a discussion. Talk to me, right? And so Jesus starts into this parable and he tells the story about two men who both owed money to the same person and one owed a little bit and then one owed a lot, but neither one of them could pay it. But the man then canceled the debt of both of them. And so Jesus looks at Simon and he says, who do you think will love the man more? And Simon says, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. Let me just offer a word about these two debts for just a second. It's sort of like missing a flight. Anybody ever missed a flight before? You can admit it. I've missed a lot of them. I've missed a few. One time I was in San Jose. I was traveling with another person who was dilly-dallying. It wasn't my fault. It was their fault. And it wasn't my wife. I'll just make that really clear. She's amazing to travel with. It was this guy, and he was dilly-dallying. I wanted to stop for coffee, and I just was like, come on, we got to go. And so I'm racing to the airport. We, we drop the rental car off. We race through the gate agents. We race through security. I run to the gate just in time to see them close the boarding door. Has that ever happened to anybody? Like, literally, it's that moment. You're like, you can't open it, and I don't know why, but they can't. Like, they're just standing there. There's a knob on it, just like every other door, but somehow it doesn't work because now we're 10 seconds late, right? So that happens to me, and I literally watch the plane go down the runway and take off. And I'm just like, I cannot believe we were that close. Another time, um, I got stranded on an island in Alaska and I missed my flight by three days. 
That was really fun. I showed up to the gate agent and I said, I missed my flight. And she said, which one was it? And I said, it was one that was on Monday. And she goes, all right, we'll fix that, right? I mean, I really, really missed my flight. But let me just say this. Almost making my flight and clearly not making my flight still means I missed my flight, right? Doesn't matter how much you miss your flight by, you still miss it. In this story, this woman, she missed her flight by a long shot. Simon, he watched the boarding door close. But they both missed their flight. And what Jesus is telling Simon, Simon, you need a savior just as badly as she does. You have a debt you can't pay. See, Simon thought this. Simon thought, Jesus, come to my house and then give me a map. Give me a road map to follow. Give me a plan. Give me a message that I can hold on to, that I can walk out with my life. Give me a deeper sense of purpose or meaning for myself, right? But Jesus looks at Simon. He says, listen, that map, that plan, that's not going to get you anywhere. You need a guide. You need a person, not a plan. You don't need a message. You need the messenger, You need me. You need a savior. You need somebody to pay your debt. And the the last thing that Jesus says to him, the last thing he hears from Jesus pointed towards him is, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. See, your love for Jesus, my love for Jesus, is a response to how deeply forgiven we understand ourselves to be. Do you understand? Doesn't matter how moral, doesn't matter how religious you've been, it doesn't matter how perfect your attendance at this church or any other church has ever been, all of us are the woman. We're all the woman. And when you ask the question, what is God like? What is it like to live in relationship with him? One of the stories that God tells us to show us what it's like to live in relationship with him is this one. What is God like? He shows us a woman who's a known sinner washing the feet of Jesus. That is who God is. Amen? Would you pray with me? I just want to take a moment and let this seep in for a moment. Jesus shows us two people, Simon and the woman. And I don't think there's any one of us that hears the story and says, I want to be Simon. And yet, whether it's the attitudes we have towards others in judgment or whether it's the depth to which we understand our own brokenness or whether it's the lack of love that we extend towards Jesus, the the holding him at arm's length and not giving him all of our lives, on so many levels we can be Simon. And yet Jesus says, I want you to be like this woman who gives everything. Lord, would you let us be those kinds of people?
Would you level the playing field? Let us all realize we're all in the same boat. We all had a debt. We all needed it paid. And you did it for us. And Lord, may we be the kind of people who lavish you with love and pour out our lives at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? We have the habit of offering a benediction at the end of our services for those of you that are new. And it's just ascending into this week with an awareness of what we've learned and what we've discovered and what we've taken in from God's word. So if you're open to receiving this, simply hold your hands out and I offer this to you. May you be men and women who realize that those who love much have been loved much. And may you realize that that's you. You are loved in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Do me a favor today. Just say hi to a couple people as you're walking out. Be human, be friends, and we'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.